Please be seated. And if you can keep open the Bibles at that page from uh, John's Gospel, chapter 1, that would be good. Tonight we begin a sermon series from uh, the Gospel of John. And it's a privilege to be back here to bring God's Word to us tonight. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Your Word is light and life. And we pray that you'll shine its light in our hearts tonight so that we may live, that we may live life with you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, about last Friday, that's how the A.A. Milne book of Winnie the Pooh begins. And for a child who might be six years old, last Friday might indeed be a long, long time ago. If you remember back to when you were a child, and some of you may still be children, uh, time is different from how we view it as adults. We think that next weekend is a lifetime away. I remember when I was six, thinking that It would be so long before I would be a teenager. Seven long years. Well, now, from my perspective, I look back over the last seven years. I've lived in Malaysia nearly seven years. And the day I arrived is like yesterday. Time somehow shrinks the older we get. We look back as children, and we struggle to have a sense of History, in perspective, that is. How many of us ever asked, Grandpa, were you alive when there were dinosaurs? That is, an old person seems to be so ancient when you're a little child, maybe they coexisted with the dinosaurs. I remember my great-grandmother, born in 1881, who knew people born early in the 1800s. And it seemed incredible to me that somebody could know people so, so far away. When I was growing up, I thought World War II was ancient history. But now I realize that, in fact, it was only a few short years before I was born. If we were to begin Mark's gospel tonight... He begins in 30 AD with John the Baptist announcing the adult Jesus. If we were to turn to Luke's gospel, Luke takes us a little bit further back, for he begins in 5 or 6 BC with the announcement of the conception of Mary to give birth to Jesus. If we were to begin Matthew's gospel, he takes us further still back. For Matthew begins with a genealogy that takes us to 2000 BC, to Abraham, an ancestor of Jesus. But we're not beginning with Mark or Luke or Matthew. We're beginning with John. And John takes us even further back. John does not begin with a manger in Bethlehem. He does not begin in Nazareth with the angel's announcement to Mary. John does not begin 
by taking us back to King David, 1000 BC. He does not begin with the Exodus or Abraham, 2000 BC. He begins at the beginning, at the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word. That statement is a reminder to us, if we know very little even of the Old Testament, the opening words of the whole Bible, the first chapter of the first book of the First Testament, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is taking us to that very point, the starting point of history, before this world was even created, before God even spoke, let there be light. And in the beginning was the Word. What an intriguing way to begin a gospel. It's as if John is deliberately creating a sense of mystery and intrigue. In the beginning was We expect maybe God, but in the beginning was the Word. What Word? Why does he say Word? What is this Word? A Word, of course, communicates, whether written or spoken. We sometimes say that a picture tells a thousand words, but in fact that's not true. Words are sharper, clearer communication than pictures ever are. Most pictures have an element of uncertainty or ambiguity, openness of interpretation. But words are clearer. Words communicate. And what is being told to us here at the beginning of this Gospel of John is about the communication of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Well, that could be anything. God could be with anything or anyone. But the next phrase or clause makes it even sharper and more astonishing. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Take away either of those two things, with God or was God, and we are left in some doubt and possible heresy actually. That is, this word, whatever it is, was somehow with God but was God. That is, there is a complexity in the identity of God. We do not believe in what's called a Unitarian God, that God is simply one identity or one person, one entity. Because here, in a sense, John is saying God was with God. The word was God and the word was with God. That is, there is some complexity to the identity of God here. Now, those of us who know John's gospel know exactly that this word is referring to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ. At this point, though, a reader of John for the first time would not have that clarity. But what is being said here is that God is not simply one as in Unitarian, We know that we worship a Trinitarian God, but on the other hand, we do not worship three gods, or even at this point, two. That is, the Word and God, we don't worship them as separate, but as the one God with a complexity of identity, or what we would later say if we keep reading John's Gospel, at least at this point, two persons 
in the one Godhead. Now that's a little bit hard. A friend of mine just completed a couple of years ago a PhD thesis on the Trinitarian relationship of God the Son to God the Father. And here is John expressing astonishingly profound truth in such simple words and phrases. In the beginning was the Word. He did not come after the beginning, even seconds after. He was there at the very beginning. And that Word was both with God, so therefore some distinction from God the Father, as we would later call it, but at the same time is fully divine. All sorts of heresies get these little phrases so simple, but they get them wrong. So many heresies rank Jesus just a little lower on the divinity ladder, that somehow at the top is God the Father and marginally below, or for some heresies well below, comes God the Son. But that's not allowed here. In the beginning was the Word, right at the very start, and that Word was God. Equally, we might say, with God the Father, so God the Son. So as I say, we do not worship a God who is a simple entity, one person, a Unitarian God. On the other hand, we do not worship separate gods, the Word and God, as some allege the Christians do. We worship one God who has a complexity of identity and yet an underlying unity. And that's what John is expressing so astonishingly simply here. That word is not an it. It's not a thing. It's not an abstract. For he goes on in verse 2 to say, he was in the beginning with God. It's personal, or he is personal, I should say. The word is a person. Now, if you've never read John's gospel, if you know nothing of Jesus Christ, to get to verse 2 would sound rather amazing and astonishing and certainly intriguing. John's deliberately creating that sense of mystery to whet our appetite, to arouse our curiosity, to keep us reading, indeed, to find out more. And why does he use the word word? Because of this communication. Because this he word reveals, discloses, or exposes the character, plans, and purposes of God. He is God, and so more fully than any other disclosure of God, this living he reveals to us the nature of God. More than God's words spoken or written through Old Testament times, this person this word, this living word, he reveals God most fully. As I said, John deliberately brings us back to the opening words of the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we may well know that the first act of God's creation was when he said, let there be light. John's taking us back and deliberately echoes that creation. For what he's wanting to show here, to at least echo or allude to here, a, a theme that will, unra- will, will unfold and develop as the gospel goes, 
is that what this living word has come to do is to bring a new creation, a restored creation, a new perfect creation. For the old fell into darkness of sin. And the world, as John later says in this reading, did not know this word. It rejected this word. The darkness did not like the light. That's the story of the Bible from the third chapter of Genesis to the New Testament. God said, let there be light. He separated light from darkness. But now what we read in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Firstly, this word has made everything. It's not simply God the Father who is the creator. So often I see in modern theology this error, that the Father creates, the Son redeems, and the Spirit enlivens, but not so. They all work together, and the Son creates with the Father. As this passage makes clear, all things were made through Him and in Him. Nothing is outside of Him. And He is the light, the light shining in the darkness. John uses that expression to suggest and allude to the fact that the coming word into the world, Jesus that is, is to re-establish a new creation. As God said, let there be light. So this word living is the light that shines in the darkness to overcome the darkness, to bring indeed the light of a new and restored creation. How will the word do that? Not by his goodness, but primarily by his death, which is where this gospel leads us to in an astonishing climax towards the end. At this point, John doesn't make that clear. He just wants to whet our appetites, to give us a sample of what is to come. This word was both light and life. Not just life as we know it, an enduring existence, day after day, so that last Friday seems forever ago but rather the quality of life, a perfect life. Life as God made it to be in Genesis 1 and now brings it again through this living word. In him was life. He is the source of life. In verse 3, John said that this word made everything, and so it is. In him, in the word, was life. That is, as we know it, in Jesus we find the source of life, both originally and in its restored perfection. It's interesting how often in John, he plays with the idea of life, using, or at least in Jesus' words, using different images and pictures and metaphors of life. When he feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. To the woman at Samaria in chapter 4 and again in verse chapter 7, in effect, Jesus says, I give you life-giving water. In chapter 10, he said, I came to give you life in all its fullness and abundance. Chapter 14, the night before he died, he declared solemnly to his disciples, I 
and the way, the truth, and the life. But before that, when he brought out of the tomb his friend Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, out he came. I am the resurrection and the life. And that's the great climax that this gospel leads us towards. Beyond the astonishing climax of the cross is the resurrection climax, the reappearance of the risen Lord Jesus, the life, the life giver. In him was indeed life. And John then is making an extraordinary claim about Jesus here, that this Jesus Christ is the source of life with God, uniquely and supremely. There is no other way to life with God, not through any other deity, not through any other religion or spiritual experience or practice, only through this one, this living word, who was with God in the beginning and was God in the beginning, whom we know as the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In him alone and uniquely is the source of life with God. As I said, the old creation failed through sin. And morally, darkness came upon this world from Genesis 3 through the thousand pages of the Old Testament. But now the light shines in the darkness. And as verse 5 says, in a strange way actually, the darkness did not overcome it. It's a strange verb form actually. It refers to one particular time, not as a generalization. And what John is alluding to here with that strange verb form is what he'll show more clearly in the later pages of the gospel. The darkness did not overcome this light in his death on the cross and his triumphant rising from the dead. You see, all the old creation's problems caused by human sin are overcome by this light-giving, life-giving word who was there in the beginning with God. John wrote this gospel, he tells us at the end, so that we may have life. That we who've not seen this light or Jesus in person may yet have life in his name. Not just that we may live, but that we may have life in his name. That's where it's heading to. And throughout the gospel, as I say, not only are the, the, the metaphors of life, but the idea of being born again to a new life, to eternal life in chapter 17 as well. Well, this life-giving word did an astonishing thing. If we jump down to verse 14, perhaps the most famous verse of this passage, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, that translation is slightly simple because John again uses a slightly strange, in this case, word, not verb. Well, verb actually, yes. The word became flesh and literally pitched his tent among us. Now here in Malaysia, in the middle of a thunderstorm in which I half an hour ago got drenched getting into the building, pitching a tent 
seems a ridiculous thing to do. But that's what the word is that's translated rather benignly for us as dwelt. Why does John use such an odd word? Again, I think in this opening overture to his gospel, he's using interesting ideas, words, phrases, and verbs to arouse our curiosity, to make us think, to intrigue us, to whet our appetite. In the Old Testament, to which he's alluding here, there is one tent, one famous tent, in fact. Thirteen chapters are devoted to the instructions and building of this tent. For many of us, they're the most boring chapters we could ever read in the Old Testament. And yet they remain so important, for this tent was the dwelling place of God on earth. The tent surrounded by a portable courtyard fence, behind curtains, away from the eyes of the people of Israel, beyond which nobody could enter apart from the high priest once a year. There God dwelt in the middle of his sinful people, Israel. For perhaps 400 or 450 years, that was the main place of worship of ancient Israel. From the days of Moses to Solomon. It was portable. They moved it through the wilderness and a few different places within the promised land as well. But when Solomon was king, on his father David's instruction, he made that movable tent into a permanent grand building, the Temple of Jerusalem, which stood then for another four to five hundred years. But this tent, this tabernacle as it was called, the dwelling place of God in the middle of his people. That's what John is alluding to here. Intriguingly, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. A tent was not pitched for him among us. He pitched it. And what John is referring to becomes clearer in the next chapter, which you'll see, I assume, in a few weeks' time. When Jesus himself says, I am the temple, I'm the living temple, speaking of the resurrected body of Jesus to come. You see, no longer a building, no longer a tent, but a person. For it's in this living word become flesh that God meets humanity. No longer behind curtains, but in the incarnation of the Son of God Jesus Christ himself. There God draws near to sinful people. As he did in the Old Testament tent, through blood sacrifice of animals, but now more greatly, more effectively, through this Jesus and his death and his sacrificial blood that draws us to God. That's why we have life. Not because we're good, not because we're pious, not because we earn it. We have life because this word was the tent, the tabernacle, the temple, the living temple. And through his blood, we have life in his name. That's where John's gospel is heading towards. Some years ago, our family, I think it was, had a box of chocolates maybe at Christmas 
It was the first time I'd seen this brand, Whitman's, I think American maybe. It was called Whitman's Sampler Box. And the idea was this new brand on the market, they put inside different, every chocolate was different. The idea being you take a sample of their range to make you wet or wet your appetite, to make you salivate, to make you want more, and of course, therefore, to buy more. And in a way, this opening passage of John's gospel, the overture to the book, is like Whitman's sampler. Little themes, little ideas, intriguing notions of life, of light, of flesh, of body, of the beginning of light shining in darkness, of a tent, of grace and of truth. It's not all clear only in this paragraph. John knows that. He's giving us enough suggestions and enough ideas that we want to go more, we want to go further, we want to keep reading, we want to keep listening. And that's my hope tonight. That whether we're believers or not yet believers, that this intriguing paragraph that opens this book from verse 1 to 18 that was read for us rouses our curiosity enough to keep reading. Why not do that this week? It'll only take an hour or a little over that, perhaps, to read this gospel in full. Better use of time, perhaps, than playing on our phones all week. John wants us to have life in Jesus' name. Many of us have that, of course. But this gospel is a good reminder to us of the profound grace of salvation that comes through this living word. But it may be that some of you are not believers or maybe are unsure about your relationship with God. And what better thing to do than to devote an hour to keep reading John's gospel? And like this opening paragraph, it's so simple and yet so profound. Several people over centuries have said John's gospel is simple enough or shallow enough for a child to walk in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim. And why not? keep following the series of sermons that will follow in weeks to come. As we see these themes in the overture unfolding grandly and majestically, triumphantly and curiously, leading us to a cross, but beyond that to resurrection life. I write this, he said, so that you may believe and believing in him you will have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord our God, for the life that you offer us in your living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks. We thank you that you've saved us from darkness of sin and brought us into the glorious light of the gospel through your son Jesus. And for this we give you thanks. Amen.